I got your message. I haven't celebrated Festivus in years. What is your interest? Well, just tell me everything, huh? Many Christmases ago, I went to buy a doll for my son. <laughs> I reached for the last one they had, but so did another man. As I rained blows upon him, I realized there had to be another way. What happened to the doll? It was destroyed. But out of that, a new holiday was born. A Festivus for the rest of us. Well, waking up this morning, kind of sad. Jerry Stiller, the father of Ben, and also the father on Seinfeld, George Costanza, has passed away at the age oh. of 92. Yeah, Radio Hope, that is... um. That was oh. sad news to wake up to, but yeah, it really is. I mean, his big thing was the Festivus. That was what his uh, what his character was based off of, and um, God rest his soul today. Wow. So there's that bit of good news. Then I look in the TV and see there was a manhole explosion in Manhattan, and it's just like, well, what else is they gonna tell me? You know. Well. Uh... You know, anything I say, I, who was the guy, Gene something? Gene Shepard. Oh, my. I am going to be so hooked on this person. It's, why did I say that? Because he said something like anything that comes out of his mouth is like somehow could be taken wrong or something. The gist of it. What did you like my little my little joke there? Because I'm I'm listening. I'm like, is Mike Myers talking to me right now or something? That blew me away. And and I actually, if you could send me the link to that whole thing, yeah, it's that now, was amazing. You could almost play it on your own pod as a straight thing or divide it up. I don't know, but it's it's a pretty cool bit actually. So. And 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 I'm looking for that one. I think I might just listen to Gene Who. Shepherd, say S H E P H E R D, and it's spelled J E A N. Yeah, yeah. What's up with that? Hmm. Did you ever try and build the ham radio, Michael? I feel like you're the kid that would try that. I I actually have built a number of things. I used to uh, get paid to build people's um, Dyna kits. Way back in the day, you'd buy these, you know tube type amplifiers and I sit down and build them for people and solid state amps. And I, I just, I love electronics. I'm just wired. <laughs> uh, speaking of wired, do you know that there's, see, I love this because you're letting me cue into my stories that I want to talk about in the morning with you. Yeah, it's all about that, you. I'm helping you. I think there's, anyway. uh, have you had your sa- cable satellite prescription subscription still? No. Because two million other people have cut the cord in the last couple months from their satellite because of no sports and all that. I uh, they they wouldn't work with me anymore. I used to sell for Dish and Direct, and uh, I just we cut Netflix too. You did, yeah. I think you had mentioned that. What's yeah. your favorite mm-hmm. career now that I know that you've been building all this stuff and working with Dish and and all that? What's your favorite career by far, though? That is a oh, you mean looking back. Um. Oh wow! Probably owning my own uh, retail sales and service electronic shop. What's the best buy? We ran an ad like this. What's the best buy without the best service? Absolutely nothing. I'm surprised we didn't get sued. Uh, so you were trying to best best buy. That's kind of clever. 
That's very cool. Well, we were we were in the area before Best Buy, and then everybody was driving to Best Buy to get the best deal. And I'm like, okay, you get the best deal, and you think I have to service it because I'm a Sansui warranty center? Nope, I can pick and choose. It is so, a hard, so if you're doing if you did retail, it must break your heart that all these things are starting to file for bankruptcy, like Neiman Marcus and all these other places. I um we're missing something when when you can't go what do they call it brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something very um, special about brick and mortar. In fact, speaking of that, I mean, where else could you go and see a, a laser disc? Actually, right. Pixel, the little Pixar, like, yeah, wow. Oh yeah, we had a cool. We I had an amazing. Yeah, yeah, we okay, had, was there ever a I mean, Sam Goody in Iowa? I'm not sure. Probably, maybe. Okay, because we that was where we got all our electronics, like Sam Goody in New York. So I don't know if there was one in Iowa or not. I'm not sure. Hmm. No, we had audio labs and we had cassette tape wars. Who could sell the good quality? <laughs> no, no. Tell me about this. This is fun. Well, yeah. Who could sell the uh, the the Maxell XL two D Cassette tape, C90s for the cheapest price. And, uh, wow. And you still have a lot of those tapes, I'm sure, right? Saved up somewhere? Oh, Alex, I used to do a a show on a secular rock station called The Rock. Anyway, and I got boxes of them. And it's, it's, yeah, I... 125 bucks for an hour show out of pocket. I had to pay for those. Wow. And 125 back then was a lot of money, right? It's a lot of money now. Yeah. I mean, point. to me, of course, I'm getting 2000 a month for six months times two because I, I'm married. So I hope that does not go through. I just went way off. I don't know. Anyway, uh, okay. so you ever, do you ever want to do that converted into digital or are you going to leave it as a tape? That's a great question. Um, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, that is what it that Too many out true. there. I, I did that for years. And then got called into the office once. And, and this was one of your best there. friends, right? The pencil where you just have to recoil the tape with the pencil and all that. Wasn't that a thing? Yeah. Like that? Yeah. Yeah, see? Oh, I miss I Oh. Now, this cool. is actually an actual interview with Dale, the lead singer of the Christian band Bride. So that was in my in my deck. And you can easily still fire them off on your pod, right? Because they're connected through the board. Absolutely. Plus, they got a reel to reel underneath the pool table. Man, you are so amped up. I'm hearing like this this ham radio kind of thing, and you've got this whole uh, setup. I'm very, imp- I love it. And I love the, your passion for radio. Like it is, um, oh. it's evident. And you know the best part is some radio people off the air a little bit awkward. You're very like, you're not awkward, and I love that. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, on the air, you're a bit awkward, huh. and that's that's a bit <laughs> the shtick. But but in general, like uh, you know how to talk, and you're not um, isolated from the world. If that makes sense. That hasn't always been the case. I mean, like I told you, you know, our little conversation about scripting things doesn't work for me. I could not 
I think that's why I'm having a hard time writing a book. I think I just need to use Dragon Speak uh, version 11 and just start rambling. Oh, plus I got this cool thing. Oh, nice. That looks awesome. I don't use it. You should use it. I rarely use it. It's silly. Um, serious question now. Any symptoms since you were tilling the garden with your COVID positive brother or still okay? <laughs> no symptoms. Good. Oh, and, um, you know, again, I think one of the interesting things is how the numbers go up, the more people are tested because so many people have it, had it, may have it and don't know it. And it's just, it's a way to slowly go crazy. Yeah. And you know, what's even crazier is that, so we got the hospitalizations down in New York, the deaths are still climbing, but the hospitalizations are down. So that's a good thing. At what rate are they climbing? Well, I had seen like 285 dead as of yesterday's that's press still, briefing. So that's so, so high. Still. You know, and it is still, I think the thing that we, I heard some of this stuff this morning at what's been going on with Iowa. And it's still, I mean, it's very sad. You know, no matter what comes through, what, whatever that starts, you know, taking lives, it's, it's sad. And, and I think the bummer is people accuse others of, well, you really don't care if people die because it's all about the economy. I do care if people die. That's just, right. a, why do people do that? Oh, I know. It's projecting. I do it myself. Well, and there's a sector that doesn't even care about the economy on the whole. They don't even want it to get back to normal. That's what I'm scared for, is that there's going to be that will of people who don't even want a good economy for America to win over those who want a good economy and good health. You know, somebody posted something the other day, and it was uh, about people, you know, it was more about the economy than anything, and that people, you know, this country wasn't based on fear. And I said... I had to come back and say, I don't know if it's, how about just people being leery yeah. of getting back? And there's nothing wrong with that. Stay home if you think you need to stay home, but I'm not going to call you a chicken. That's just right. wrong. It's falling in the same trap as everybody else. I don't want to do that. And tomorrow, I truly hope, Michael, by the way, Radio Hope, 9 a.m. Eastern. Let's talk about you for a minute. I feel like I'm just throwing news topics out there. What you got on the show today at 9 a.m. Eastern? Why? It's okay to have fun as a follower of Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Because I was listening to a show this morning, a buddy of mine, and um, it, it, it was kind of sort of, it was almost like he was downplaying, you know, Ecclesiastes. Um, it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor. That's beautiful. I mean, and then to enjoy... The, the possessions, the you know, it's not wrong to enjoy stuff. Well, and, and that's where I think there's a misconception, a misperception of Christians, because people say, who you know, once they hear their, oh, so then you're not fun because you do this, that, and the other. It's like, no, we're fun too. But there's a precept that Christians are not fun because these people have it ingrained in their minds. They're just Bible thumping, you know, they're not, they're not really out there kind of people type of thing. Well, and I mean, I have fun going on an Amish, you know, drive-by throwing field corn at people. Yeah, because you're that type of fun person. I mean, come on. But <laughs> you know what corny. I mean? Like, there's a perception out there that, you know, because you're a Christian, you can't have fun. And that, that's... 
or you don't have fun. And it's like, no, you know, we can have fun. And, and just the uh, the ability, you know, to it, think about what life would be like without laughter. I mean, uh-huh. laughter is good medicine. He says it is. God says it is, so it must be. Well, that whole... There were so many moments of joy. I mean, when Jesus turned water into wine, firstly, that joy. was one of the. Yeah. Did I go ahead? Your brain on something there? Well, yeah, it's just songs, songs about joy, joy in the morning, joy to the uh, world, ode to, ode joy, to joy. joy. <laughs> exactly. We need more of that. We don't need these other. Because what. You know what I'm hearing on the radio more is like more of the breaking news theme and nothing fun. It's more like more pandemic. And it's like, oh, come on. Can we just not have it sound so end of the world like? And they do. They make it sound end of the world like. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking this again, the stuff that I have a pastor friend I'm going to meet up with here this week because we're uh, um, I realized one of my major issues in life is it's again it's called projecting and i didn't realize my i'm projecting my sin on other people and then i get ticked at him and don't realize i'm guilty it's just it's it's so wrong okay i'm sorry i know miles tries to keep you straight on the sunday podcast it's very interesting to listen to him and he's one that i had a nice conversation with about that because i wasn't i wasn't I was kind of rude to him when he called in the other morning during the show. He didn't know that I was doing a podcast. It's like, Mike, you're a self-righteous twit. And also the you thing is, I, I think you podcast more than just 9 a.m. Eastern, right? Because you're on the air early in the morning or later in the day. Like you're, There's always an on air for you at some points other than 9 a.m. Well, we talked about that, and uh, you and I did. And if I were to jump on the... Uh, a podcast every time I had a thought <laughs> I wouldn't get anything else done because I do think in spite of what other people think I do think deep thoughts by Mike you do and then and we talk about that we well, have the urge to just jump on but is it is it always necessary because you also want to limit the um, quantity of things you do during a day on here or you just saturate the audience that's kind of what I'm nervous about where you're what Saturating the audience. That's what I'm nervous oh. about. Oh. Like jumping well, too much. And for me, it's its just, it, uh, it's a balance. Yeah. I, there, I, Facebook is still an addiction for me. I mean, I have to run in and I don't have to, but I run and check who responds to, responded to this. Did did Alex send me, send me another link of something I really want to check out? Did, did what's going on with, it's like, get a life, Mike. Go dig a hole. I sometimes Handsome. feel forced to just throw my phone across the room because I don't want to even look at it half the time. Yeah, it's called taking a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a media fast. Yeah. It's just getting social media specifically because I'm hooked. Media. It well, is. this interview is a bit long, so I want to start it, Michael, and I know I want to respect that you start at 9 a.m., so I want to start mine before it ends, before yours starts 9 a.m. Eastern. So I will see you tomorrow, and I just love this. I love what we're doing. I do, too, and I was, like I said, it wasn't quite. I woke up this morning, and I one of the first things I do, I'll tell you, okay, and I'm now I'm stretching 
It's okay. And um, I looked at my bank account. And I noticed we rented a, uh, a storage, one of those storage shed thingies for my son. And they required, uh, I went to uh, cancel it because we had it cleaned out. And they said, well, you have to give us a five-day notice. To make a long story short, they charged me locally Okay. for the month. And then I went back and looked, and it looks like some main outfit, maybe out of Utah, gave me a credit for that same amount. And I'm like, that's cool. That is awesome. And I, I, I mean, if, if it shows that you got a credit on your credit card, and I'm assuming it means there was a credit, not a debit, right? Yeah, so you're getting the money. Why would you get the money back, though? Do they know? Do you know? Well, I think I got it back because I canceled in time, and maybe they oh, good. added something to their agreement that said tough luck because I contacted them. I didn't. Oh, never mind. Anyway, I'm just. A, I was like, hmm, that's that, cool. And then I couldn't log back in because I thought I messed up my. Well, hey, <sighs> so you got some money today, even though I'm sure you didn't want to. Can't you know? Whenever you invest in something, canceling it is the worst thing because you just wanted to go through and work. You know. Oh, you mean as far as canceling something? Yeah, I mean because you probably put a lot of effort into your son's whatever you were doing to help him along and, and investing in the stories you did. Yes. Yeah. And he did make good on it. And I think that's cool. And she's showing he's a good kid. He's not a kid. He's 35. Jeez. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, that's why yep. uh, it was very funny really quickly. That's why I was uh, not supposed to play ball in the backyard because I, if I break a window, I'm not a kid. So I'd probably be charged for breaking my parents' house window. And don't put rocks in snowballs. And lob them at the neighbor's 1950 Ford Classic. And how old were you when you did that? 21. Oh, no, I, I, I don't know how old I was. I Maybe 11, 12. 13. Okay. Well, hey, you had some fun back then, I guess. Throwing it would cost my mom every time. Every time? All right, Mike, we got to hold that conversation. We'll talk about that tomorrow because right, if it's right. every time. Every time. <laughs> I'm very curious. Uh, all right. We'll talk to you tomorrow morning. Have a great show at 9 a.m. Radio All right. Hope. Thanks, brother. Bye. Love you, brother. Be well. I've always been a Packer fan. It's easy to cheer on a team that's always winning. Well, indeed, the Green Bay Packers, they do know how to win, right? This is a Packer parody, Packer backer. And they do know how to win. And, of course, while watching the team win, what do they wear? They wear cheese heads. And so I, I figured, why not tie that into this next discussion to start off the week with Kate Johnson. Kate, first of all, welcome to Keeping with Alex Garrett. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, so why am I playing a cheese-related song? What What is up with cheese this month? It is American Cheese Month. It's a whole month. We get a whole month. <laughs> and And so why is that important to you? Tell us your role in American Cheese Month. Well, so unlike most of the people who that month is celebrating, who are the cheese producers, I run a cheese making school. So I am helping other people produce their own cheese from the comfort of their own kitchens. And how, you know, tell us more about that, but how important is that from their own kitchens now that we're literally in quarantine and possibly on a food shortage? Tell us a little bit about all of that. Yeah, well, it is really becoming popular, you know, as as pe- this quarantine thing kind of 
heated up, people were baking a lot of bread. I still can't buy yeast at the grocery store. It's been sold out for two months. And people were canning a lot and whatnot. And cheese making is one of those things that maybe not as popular or as well understood by home cooks, but yet is easily accessible. And so I think now people are really ripe for it. They're, they're ready. I've been teaching in-person classes for years, but I had to quickly transition to teaching via Zoom so that we could reach people and get them making cheese. So on the one hand, it's something fun to do, right? It's a great fun skill to learn. And um, a lot of cheeses don't take very complex ingredients. Uh, you can make a, in fact, I just finished making a really nice ricotta to make lasagna for dinner tonight. Ooh. And it's milk and vinegar. I How mean, cool it couldn't be that? easier. How cool is that? By the way, we're talking with Kate Johnson. She is the owner and uh, lead cheese coach at the Artisan Cheese Making School, right? That's kind of where you're at? Yeah. Our school is called the Art of Cheese, and we're located in Longmont, Colorado, which is just outside of Boulder. Um, but we're now teaching just about anywhere, anytime, <laughs> with, because we can use Zoom, modern technology. It is true. And I know that you also still get time on the field. Uh, you just said you were with your goats. So uh, yeah. how are you doing with them and how, how are they holding up? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. The goats, A, have no idea there's a virus out there. And B, they're completely ignoring social distancing. Um, they, they are, life is as usual for the goats. And so for me, it's really been a nice break from, you know, the craziness of the world to know like kidding season went just as scheduled and they oh. had their babies just like they always have. And I have something to do when I'm stuck at home. Well, I've got to ask, do you, <laughs> um, I know goat cheese. I don't know if you play around with that as well, but that just comes to mind when you talk about goats in the, in the farmyard there. Oh, for sure. Well, that's how I got my start. You know, I started because my kids were raising dairy goats as a 4-H project. And this was 12 or 13 years ago. And then we had dairy goats and when you breed them and they have babies, eventually you wean the babies and then you have milk and you have a lot of milk because that milk just keeps coming every single day. And right. so eventually you got to figure out what to do with all that milk. And that's really how I started making cheese. I was just trying to use up milk and I really had no intention of opening a cheese making school. I was just using up our milk. But gradually, um, as I learned a lot and I started taking a lot of classes myself, and started telling people I was making cheese, then people wanted to learn, and this little hobby just kind of grew and grew. So really most of my initial cheese making was goat cheese, but when I say goat cheese, I mean anything, because you right. can make, you know, most people think chev, which is the classic soft goat cheese, but you can make any cheese out of goat milk. So I'm, I make goat ricotta and goat mozzarella and goat cheddar and goat brie and camembert. <laughs> yeah. Kate, uh, something's come up in my mind here. So it's National Cheese Month. Why is it so important to recognize American cheese? Why is it so important to recognize the role cheese plays in our society? Well, you know, cheese is an ancient food, right? We've been making and eating cheese for thousands and thousands of years. But the artisan cheese, um, I guess, world is relatively young in America. So, you know, this celebrating American Cheese Month is really celebrating how far we've come in a really short period of time. I mean, within the past 25 years, the American artisan cheese war movement has just exploded. And there are so many good cheesemakers. And in fact, this year, it was an American cheesemaker that won world's best 
cheese, wow. world best. I mean, you're competing against France, you know, yeah. and, you know yep. and it was an American cheesemaker. So, I mean, that's just pretty, pretty cool. So it's a lot to celebrate. You know, I personally love provolone, but maybe I should switch to American now. I don't know. Yeah, or you can, well, when we say American cheese, you know, as far as American cheese month, we're not talking like craft singles, you know, like. That's American what I was wondering. Okay. Cheese. Yeah, we're talking about cheeses made in America. So all kinds of cheeses are being made in America. I mean, the cheese that won was a blue cheese, wow. you know, that was a very exotic wrapped, leaf wrapped blue cheese. But I mean, really good brie and camemberts are being made here in America. So they're really just talking about cheese is made here, not what we might think of as American cheese. Well, knowing that we can make it here in America, that's changing the conversation now, isn't it? Beyond craft and all that? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's what I kind of mean. The artisan movement is a little different than, you know, the big manufacturing or processed cheeses. Artisan cheeses by definition, well, by my definition, anyhow, mean, you know, small batches and minimal mechanization, really handcrafted cheeses, mm. as opposed, there aren't robots flipping the cheeses in those cheese rooms, there aren't mechanical arms stirring the curd, those are like people doing the hard work and lovingly tending to each and every wheel of cheese, and, and that's and kind of what we mean, yeah. Hey, we should honor those who roll up their sleeves in every industry, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah. knowing this and knowing that we're kind of trying to get it back into a man-made kind of thing, not a machinery, um, have you seen any problems with the pro produce from factories that we can, what we should look out for? Well, are you meaning just cheese in particular or all products? All well, whatever products. you feel like talking about, because I know that you're also for sort of doing your own thing instead of relying on the factories. Yeah. So, you know, it's not that I have anything against, say, you know, the big cheese producers, because we're celebrating them this month, too. I mean, we're not only it's not American Artisan Cheese Month, it's American Cheese Month, all cheese producers. But I think in general, when you see any food production being scaled up, the mass production of food, that typically is where we start to see problems. We hmm. don't as much see problems and, and beyond cheese, you know, I mean, think about, you know, the romaine lettuce and the cantaloupe listeria things, you know, those weren't from little family farms in your backyard. You know, those are from bigger produced, right. you know, where it gets harder to control things. And when, especially if you're getting into monoculture where, you know, you're doing one thing over and over and over again. So I think in general, it's, I think we are very lucky in the United States that we do have a, a pretty good handle on food safety. Sure. But on the other hand, the regulatory world for small producers does make it very difficult to compete with those big producers. And in actuality, a lot of consumers want to get things that are produced from small family farms or from smaller producers. But for a lot of small fa family farms, the regulatory hoops and expenses make it almost prohibitive. And that's especially true with cheese. I mean, dairy laws are really hard in many states for a small farm. Like I can't sell my cheese. You know, right. I can teach you to make cheese, but I can't make cheese here and sell it to you. So and is, that, that, yeah. is that regulation an issue why we're seeing milk being dumped out? I mean, is that a big reason why? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it is that the, the laws are so different for um, 
for kind of mass production than they are for small production, that it's really hard to just quickly retool to that. Mm. Um, and then another part problem we see for the milk that's being dumped is a lot of that milk that's being dumped now, at least this is my understanding of it is, was milk that was being produced and sold in bulk to say restaurants and big producers. And where, you know, and it didn't make sense to people, we're seeing milk being dumped and yet at the grocery store, there's no milk. And that, how does that work? Well, it's a completely different thing to process milk and put it into a one gallon jug to get it on your grocery store shelf than it is to process milk and take it in a big truck to a big producer. And so that was the problem that you can't just turn that around real quickly and, and retool. And so that's another argument in my mind for why small production is so great. It's so much more malleable and flexible. And we're really seeing that here in Colorado in the meat industry that we're really worrying about this mm -hmm. meat shortage that's going to come. But that's the big scale guys. The little scale guys here in Colorado, we have a really good smaller scale milk uh, or, or meat production. They're, they're doing fine. And so and they are also putting in big stores or are they sort of selling it individually? Yeah. So a lot of them are in stores, but maybe not the Walmarts, you know, they're in more of the finer stores and yeah, their prices are a little higher to begin with, but their prices are more stable too. Right. And so, so I, I would just say, I think there's an argument to be had or made for, um, for regulations to be more supportive of small producers than they are in most states. And, and that is changing, you know. Kate, as we're talking about this, one of the things I thought of is like, maybe you can tell us how cheese is helping us cope with COVID-19. Is there a connection there? Well, you know, I would love to say cheese is the have all and all be all of everything, but you know, <laughs> that might be a little bit overstating it. But certainly, I mean, any, you know, fermented foods and not all cheeses are actually fermented. Some of like ricotta is a simple acidification, but fermented foods in general are known to be huge immune boosters. I mean, they're just really good for your gut bacteria and all these things that do fight off things. So on that hand, I would argue that, you know, cheese would be a really good thing to have um, uh, to stave off any illness, but I'm not going to say it would cure you of, of COVID-19 or anything like that. But it, it, um, would, it would definitely help us eat healthier if it was farm-based. For sure, for sure. And if you're making homemade cheese, you know, one of the great things is you know what's going into it. So, you know, you aren't, you can control the salt content. You could control the fat content. If you don't want as much fat, you're not going to put any artificial preservatives in there. In my case, because I'm sourcing milk for my own cheese from goats that are raised in my backyard, I know they're not on antibiotics or growth hormones or, you know, any of those other kinds of things that you don't want those residues in your food. So a lot of, you know, when I'm teaching people to make cheese, yes, you can use grocery store milk and that will work. But if you can source your milk more locally from a small farm, you're going to have a little more um, control over the quality and you're also going to be helping a small producer. So we had met at the National Publicity Summit. So obviously mm -hmm. you were there for, for the reason to talk about this, but you're also doing seminars, right? So what, how can people find out about those? Yeah. So, you know, we've been teaching in-person classes on the farm. And then we also have been teaching at really fun locations like Hawaii. And we have a trip planned to France. 
But while all of that has come to an abrupt halt, I have now put a lot of classes on Zoom. So you can find all of those at theartofcheese.com. And that's my regular website that used to have a calendar full of in-person classes. And now it has a calendar full of Zoom classes. <laughs> and in fact, we, we That's have a good one. thing, though. It means people are still it's coming great. back. It's great. Yeah. And it's great because I'm able to reach people any, anywhere. And we do the classes live at a scheduled time. But then we, we record the class as well. So people can register for a class. And if they can't at attend it at the live time, they can still watch the recording and they still have access. I do something afterwards called Cheese Chat, cool. which is kind of my, my weekly office hours, I would say. And that's done via Zoom also so that people can do troubleshooting and get feedback and even do some show and tell of what they've made to other um, amateur cheesemakers. This might be a very weird question, but is there still an expiration date on the cheese you make from home or does that ex not expire? Oh, definitely. So we kind of have a little rule of thumb, that, you know, in, in when you're buying or making or eating cheese, there's two broad categories. There's fresh cheese and there's aged cheeses. And the way I always like to explain it is fresh cheese doesn't improve with age, but aged cheese does, right? So aged cheeses typically are getting more complex and more interesting as they age to a point. I mean, some mm. cheeses go beyond what's yummy at a certain point but fresh cheeses are really different and they need to be eaten while they're fresh so generally we say you know about two weeks is what okay. you have but many fresh cheeses can be frozen for instance ricotta is very easily frozen and so you can make a big batch today eat half of it freeze the other half make your lasagna later well and i think you mentioned this a little earlier but let's say someone gets frustrated with the way they the cheese comes out how many times or what's your encouragement for those who do want to do this but maybe get frustrated with the process yeah so i would say start with the easy cheeses because you know you're going to have way less time invested mm -hmm. and probably less equipment you know some of these easy cheeses you have everything in your kitchen you need now for instance ricotta you probably have vinegar in the pantry you have all the equipment you need and you just need a, a gallon of milk or a half gallon of milk. And so you're not investing as much time and equipment and, and whatnot. So get your kind of feet wet, you know, with those easy cheeses and then progress to the more difficult cheeses. And of course, there's lots of good cheese making books and there's videos. But if you can do it in tandem with somebody that you can ask questions along the way so that you're learning from your mistakes. And then just know that a lot of your mistakes are still cheese. They're mm. just not the cheese you set out to make. Well, and you that... probably can still eat them. <laughs> well, so what I love about your brand is that you're very American focused. And do you think this crisis pushes us to just make everything more in America and not rely on outsourcing anymore? Well, I mean, right now it does sort of, I think, I think we could make it even smaller than that. Let's say make things in your community, okay. right? Like get really to the community level. Um, because even our supply chains nationally are really challenged with, with this crisis. So, I mean, I think that it's going to, hopefully, we'll get through this and it'll loosen up. But I also hope that it, it encourages people to be thinking more local. I love it. Yeah. And I, yeah. I just wish they would do that anyway. I mean, to me, yeah. it feels like small. Would you agree that Small Business Saturday shouldn't be the only time we honor small business? For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And I know that your your words, I would say, kind of being suppressed by regulation. So at least you're having platforms where you can talk about this. Yeah. And the nice thing about teaching people to make cheese is I'm just teaching you how to make something to feed yourselves. Now, some of my students, though, are lucky enough to live in states that are a little more progressive than others. For instance, you know, I'm in Colorado. I have a lot of students in Wyoming because it's right up the road from us. Wyoming has probably the most progressive local food regulations of any state. They have something called the Food Freedom Act, and it really does allow small producers in their home to actually be able to sell their products to consumers. And they have had this for five years now, and they have not had a single case of foodborne illness as a result of it. And so it's, it's a model that I think we are going to see starting to move and, and trend to other places. You know, it's, I, have, I have quite a few students up there that just love it. You know, and it's almost self-regulating because if you're a sloppy producer and you're not doing well, people aren't going to buy for you from you anymore because it's right. it's so hyper local. It's people know, like they know who you are. You know, you're you're selling directly to your consumer. Well, and this is something that I, I just find awesome is interstate interstate commerce. We should bring that back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, Italy because we talked about that a little bit before the show, but Italy. I would say also was helping produce cheese, right? Because they, they love cheese over there. How has their lockdown affected our cheese production here? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily um, affected our production, but I think it definitely has produ- has affected our ability to buy their cheeses, you know, the buying and selling, importing and exporting. I mean, to be able to do that. I think, I I don't know, I haven't heard yet, a lot of the culture that we use for cheese in the United States comes from France. So this is a a different country. And I haven't heard yet if there's any supply chain issues with us getting culture here in the United States for making our cheeses or not. Mm. Um, But since most of the milk, you know, has to be produced locally. I mean, we're not using Italian milk in our cheese making, obviously. Um, Yeah. Kate, are you are you representing those who like are you sort of not representing? I don't know how to say it, but is there like a union for those who make their own cheese yet? Or are you guys working on that or? No, I don't know of any kind of, because we're it's almost like saying, is there a union for you to cook your own lasagna? You know what sure. I mean? Like we're just home cheesemakers making cheese for our families. Um, so I don't, I don't, I think part of it is that we're not being regulated. You know, we're just making our own cheese. Um, and I think part of the, a part of acts like that Food Freedom Act is to get regulations out of it. And that's why the state of Wyoming liked it because it's, it's making the agreement between you and your consumer and right. the state's not involved. So if there is a problem, the state doesn't have to worry about getting sued, right? I could sue you if you poison me with your cheese, but right. I can't then, you know, sue sue the state. Well, so how many of those do you know that are making their cheeses right now? How many people, as of right now, do you know that are doing this? Well, I know I have at least six or eight students up in Wyoming that are taking cheeses to farmers markets and, you know, are able to do that. Um, now, there are limitations, you know, they can't distribute their cheese. So um, they can only sell directly to the consumer, 
Although I was just reading, I think just in April, they've updated that law that now some of the things, and I don't know, to be honest, if cheese is in there or not, but some of the products that were covered under the Food Freedom Act are now allowed to be sold at restaurants and at cool. grocery stores. I know jams and jellies can be. Um, so they keep expanding on it and improving it because they're seeing the track record is really good. They're not having problems. Kate, you know, we're in New York City here, and you're in Colorado, but in New York City, there's very little farmland. So how do we do it in the city? And, you know, they love to regulate everything here. So how do we do it under, you know, without being regulated? Yeah, so I was I was doing a little research before I came on. I, I know that um, as a state, you know, New York has a lot of milk. I mean, you produce a ton of milk there. You're one of the top producers. But the problem is on lockdown, how do you get that milk? How are right. you getting your milk right now? I mean, you have a grocery store, right? Right around the corner, <laughs> yep. And are they having milk? Uh, I believe so. I haven't heard anything otherwise. And I don't really do the shopping. I let my stepdad go, so I don't really do the shopping here. But. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like I said, there there are, you can make cheese out of grocery store milk as long as it's not ultra-pasteurized. Ultra-pasteurized milks are very high temperature pasteurization and they're too damaged to make cheese out of, but many of much of your grocery store milk is just regular pasteurized. And so until things open back up that you can go to those farms and get milk, you know, you at least can make some cheeses from grocery store milk. But I would say figuring out, you know, once you have some ability to be mobile, sourcing your milk from those those farms and I'm sure um, I was reading a little bit about your laws are actually pretty good in New York for milk compared to ours um, and there's only I think 11 states in the United States where it's legal to sell raw milk technically legal at a store like hmm. where you could go to a grocery store and buy raw milk something which is, beyond the expiration date or how does that work so what raw milk is raw milk is milk that comes out of the animal and is left alone oh not even pasteurized just right. straight raw it's okay. just raw exactly gotcha. and that is very regulated like in my state it's illegal to buy raw buy and sell raw milk unless you'd go through something called a herd share program now, whether or not you would make your cheese out of raw milk is a whole other topic. And some cheeses, yes, some cheeses, maybe not. I would really understand how my milk was handled. But raw milk is typically going to be your fresher, small farm kind of milk. Um, and in New York, you're allowed to get that milk on farm. So when you can go to the farms again, you mm -hmm. can pick up the best quality milk possible for making cheese. You can pasteurize it if you choose to, but you can do that yourself just by heating milk up on the stove with a thermometer. It's not rocket science. <laughs> um, and then you can make, you know, you can have pasteurized milk if you choose to, or if you understand raw milk and you've done some research on the raw milk at the place you get it, you may decide to make cheese out of raw milk. Um, but that would... Do you advise course, that though, or do you advise pasteurized? You know, um, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a, a thorny, interesting, controversial question. I do think raw milk has a lot of health benefits. And the, the law for a commercial cheesemaker in our country is that you can only, they can only make cheese out of raw milk if that cheese is going to age for at least 60 days. That's the law in this country. So for, for the commercial guys, they can't make a raw milk cheese that's fresh like a fresh 
Shad, for instance, goat cheese is not an aged cheese. So that's kind of the recommendation by the FDA for home cheese makers. But of course, and that we're 60 not days is because sorry, sixty yeah. days because it'll be uh, fermented, or why is it that? that yeah, the, and so that too, it's a little bit complicated. I mean, part of it is the time that the bad things may have died off by then. But a big part of it, too, is those cheeses that do age for that long tend to be the drier, lower moisture cheeses. So they're inherently less susceptible to unwanted maybe growth. Um, even that rule is a little oversimplified and the FDA is actually reviewing whether that makes sense. But I kind of tend to suggest students follow that unless you really, really know your source. Like if okay. I go out to my milk house and I milk those goats myself. And I know what that goat did in the milk house. It didn't stick its foot in the bucket, right? <laughs> and I know that milk, that, that goat's healthy. It hasn't been treated with anything. It hasn't been sick. I'm doing regular testing on my milk. I'm much more comfortable then to use that milk raw than I would be if I'm going and driving two hours to pick up raw milk that somebody else handled. And then I'm driving it back two hours. And then it sits in my refrigerator for three days before I get around to making my cheese. So, you know, there's times where I think making raw milk cheeses is awesome. And there's mm -hmm. times where maybe it's a little bit better to pasteurize it. I have a, I, do you think that the end goal of what you're hoping to accomplish could actually mean people bring their own cheese to the wine and cheese tastings that people love to go to? Oh, yeah. Well, we do it ourselves privately, you know. I mean, it's just like if I went to a potluck and I'm bringing homemade, you know, cake. I mean, I'm bringing homemade cheese. And I tell yeah. people, you know, I do let people know, like, this is homemade cheese from my goats. And they're like, yay! Hmm. <laughs> you know? That's awesome. Um, yeah. Have you found any criticism or attacks against what you're doing? Or has it been smooth sailing? Well, every now and then you will get, and it's usually people who don't know me and it's very rare, but um, I find social media is a place that people can, you know, be maybe a little bit nastier and impersonal because of the impersonal nature of social media. But sometimes you will get people who just hate dairy altogether. I mean, usually they're vegans, right? Well, and right. And we saw the rallies of free, you know, free dairy or something like that. I don't yeah. Know, yeah. And I, I kind of get that, you know, like big dairy has, has a lot of issues. There are issues with how those animals maybe are treated, you know, the separating of mothers from babies, you know, the environmental impact of big anything, right. But big right. dairy, especially big cow dairy, you know, cows are messy, you know, <laughs> and their, their manure is a lot more environmentally difficult to deal with on a big scale. So, um, so sometimes people really just hate anything having to do with cheese and dairy. And what I like to try to say to people is, yeah, I mean, there are problems with big anything and big dairy has some of those issues. But when we're doing things, and this is another reason to be doing things on this smaller scale. I mean, my goats, I have 15 goats. They all have names. I leave mamas with babies. I, I borrow the milk, you know, I mean, I supplement babies, I leave and I get very little milk for the first two or three months because the babies are getting it all, you know, and mm -hmm. so all the more reason I should be allowed to then sell you my cheese. I'm sure. doing this in the most humane, beautiful way for my animals. And yet I can't, like, I can't sell my cheese. It's illegal. So how'd you get into all this to begin with? Like, what's your backstory? <laughs> well, when I was a kid, 
I, it, it actually, if you want to go way back, how much time do we have now? <laughs> we can go whatever. Okay. Well, if you want to go way back, when I was seven years old, okay, I was a kid that loved animals. And my family took me on a public horse trail ride and I fell off. That's mm. where it all started. I, I, I know that sounds funny, but I fell off and you would think that would be this terrible thing, but the horse stopped and waited for me. Oh my God. I just loved that horse so much. Right. I just thought, Oh, I just love horses. So like a lot of little girls, I just started yearning for a horse and wanting to live in the country. So that's kind of where it really started. I finally did get a horse years and years, years later. And I took that horse to college with me and I lived on a farm, which was so much fun. Well, shortly after college, my horse died. I couldn't afford another horse. No farm life for me for 20 more years. But all that time, I yearned to be on a farm. So you were and sort then, of in corporate America for 20 years. Oh, yeah. And I lived in a crowded subdivision, just like you know, everybody else. But I just kept, every time I drive out in the country, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, I want to live in the country so bad. And so when my, uh, my kids were born, they were, oh, I think they were about three and six when I took them to visit a local goat farm. And that just did it. I came home and I said to my husband, we have got to figure out how to raise these kids on a farm. So it took us about two years of looking at every single property in our area to finally find this place. So they were six and nine, I think, when we moved here. And um, we started with horses, but then eventually we decided to get some goats. One, I was actually teaching riding lessons and one of my students had goats and invited us over to bottle feed the baby goats. Wow. Well, you know, that's the beginning of the end right there. Because yeah. if you bottle feed baby goats, you're hooked. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. so my kids just decided they wanted to um, raise goats. And I didn't know anything about goats at that time. So I said, well, we can do it, but you'll have to join 4-H. I don't know if you're familiar with 4-H, but it's the, it, the kids that are in 4-H are the kids that bring animals to the county fairs all around. Okay, the, sure. And so that's how we learned about goats was by joining this 4-H club. So fast forward, you know, 12, 13 years, and I'm now, of course, a 4-H leader and a superintendent for the fair, and I'm making cheese and running a cheese-making school. So it started with two little goats. And, you well, know, it started and, falling you know, off the horse, right. or falling off, and then, yeah. you know, that's amazing how life yeah. turned around for you with that. Uh, yeah. We, I used, I love going to see the goats at these zoos, and, and I guess you'd say, is it herbariums? I don't know, it's like a, what do you call those? Not herbarium. There's some word I'm I'm missing there. Anyway, they'd be like on the farms and you go visit them during the hay rides and then the apple picking, like all that yeah. stuff. So I, I love them. Uh, what is yeah. your favorite cheese? Well, I have to say my probably favorite cheese is a cheese called drunken goat cheese. And it's a, it's a hard, semi-hard cheese that you make with goat milk and then you soak it in wine. So it's, you know, wine and cheese in one bite. <laughs> Okay. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Have, I do love that cheese. Do you have dogs that like herd around the goats or? We did have a, a guardian dog for a little while. Um, and the goats were really scared of him. Uh. <laughs> he wasn't very nice to the goats. And, you know, we tried, goats are pretty skittish and it, this dog was just a little too much for them. So we actually don't have that dog anymore. We took him back to the farm. We got him from, and instead we have a llama. So a lot of people don't know that llamas are natural guard animals because we live in an area that has a lot of coyotes um, oh, wow. and, and we don't want the goats to be out on pasture and then, you know, get eaten by a coyote. 
So the, the llama goes out with them and he's really protective of them and he keeps them together. And if he senses danger, he rounds them up and brings them in, but he's very gentle and he doesn't bark. Is he, is, it, is that by instinct or do you guys train them? No, it's just by instinct. About 75 or 80% of llamas, if they live with a herd of animals, it's often sheep or goats, they'll just bond to them and get this protective nature going. Do you think New York City knows about any of this self-growing cheese and self-growing idea? Or are we just so, so, you know, subjected to the grocery store, we don't even think of anything else but that? Well, I do have a few students from New York City that have come out here (laughs) and learned how to make cheese, so they know. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I would say that, you know, the more city-fied we get, the more removed from the production of food we get, right? And I just think there's a big movement of, and a big desire on the part of a lot of people who have been more maybe city bound to get back to sort of that agricultural heritage. I mean, you're seeing rooftop gardening, right? Mm-hmm. And things like that happening, which is super great. Um, so yeah, that's my mission is to get everybody in New York City making cheese. And uh, again, how can people get in touch with you with all this and, and whatnot? So the best thing is just go to my website, theartofcheese.com. And that tells all about my classes. And we have a whole bunch of different types of classes. Eventually, we will have on-farm, in-person classes. And we do something called boot camp style class. So the, the couple I'm thinking of from New York City who came here just in August or when was that? I think it was maybe it was in the fall. Um, came from New York City for three days. So it's three days all day. So if mm. you're coming from out of t- town, that's a great way to do it. You learn everything in three days. It's glorious. Um, but so that's one way in person, which of course we're not doing at the moment. Second is I have some online classes, which I already had developed before COVID-19. And those are pre-recorded um, lots of information. It's in an online format as well as a DVD. And now we're doing Zoom classes. So the Zoom classes are, but all that information's on the website. I honestly, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, and I was just going to say, I also have a book called um, Tiny Goat Big Cheese, which is my whole story. It has some goat keeping tips, but also a lot of stories about goats and horses and everybody else. But it also has cheese making recipes. Very cool. Does the weather impact the cheese making? It does. And it's very interesting. Um we live in a part of Colorado that's pretty dry. And so I'm pretty used to, for instance, there's a period of aging cheeses where you want the cheese to dry and we'll leave it at room temperature for a certain amount of time, just sitting out or I put it in my oven, but leave the oven door open and things will dry really quickly. Well, I was teaching some cheese making retreats in Hawaii in um, February and March, just before, I mean, I literally got back a week before everything closed. Wow. But um, it was very different there. I was in um, Kona which, and, and in Hilo, and it was much more humid there. And that strategy didn't work as well there. Okay. Things got moldy. You know? So I had to adapt what I was doing and found that drying cheeses in the refrigerator worked a lot better in that climate. So that's one example of, I'd say humidity and temperature are the two big things that make your cheese different. But most of that pertains to aged cheeses. Most of our fresh cheeses are not very sensitive to the the weather that's going on. Kate Johnson's with me. Um, Is it time to get away from like the corporate burgers and the corporate cheeseburgers? Like, is it time? 
I think it's past time, way past time. And, and I think not only, you know, from a, from a health perspective, but just from, you know, what we're finding is that, like I said, the small producers are a lot more flexible and malleable in times like this. So if people were having trouble, for instance, finding milk at the grocery store, if you could just go to your local farm and buy milk from the people who are doing it, wouldn't that just be nice? But yeah. in a lot of states, you can't, right? It's so regulated. Or if, if I could supplement my income right now while my cheese classes were closed by selling some of my cheese because my goats are still producing milk, wouldn't that be nice? Like I could supplement yeah. my law business, but I can't. So- well, yeah, okay, so let's say you tried to do it, right? You would mm -hmm. end up being like this Dallas, bar, you know, salon owner and arrested. <laughs> so, does that yeah. story intimidate you, or what? Not that you're fearful, but you know what I mean. Does that affect you as a small business person? Well, yeah. I mean, you don't want to get, you know, arrested and fined. Right. And in some cases, there have been some super sad stories of animals being, you know, um, confiscated and basically murdered because the the regulators decided what they were doing was not within the regulations. I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to take any chances of getting in trouble. Now that said, yeah. you know, there are people that do take the chances and there is a healthy black market, you know, for, for yeah. all things. Including well, that's not a bad no. thing in this day and age because some people still need the health, you know, and I also think Having us indoors is the worst thing they could do, but so that it is what it is, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, Kate, and, and I'm sure as we're talking, I just saw this other, the Clive Bundy case where they tried to take over his land. I mean, all these stories are worth following, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I just think they speak to, you know, I, I think there's always two sides to everything. And so I don't mean to be completely dissing regulations because I do think there's a place for regulations, you know. Think that there's a reason we can take for granted that the majority of our food is relatively safe. But I think that sometimes the common sense leaves the regulatory um, scene a little bit. And I think if we could get back to letting people make some of their own choices, you know, I often joke that, you know, in Colorado, I can, it's way easier for me to buy and sell a gun than it is for hmm. me to buy and sell milk. And that seems a little bit off, right? That's it a little just, out there. Yeah. So I, I just think we've maybe gone a little overboard sometimes with regulations, but I'm not saying we don't need any regulations. I just think we need to sometimes let people make some of their own choices. And especially when it comes to what they want to put in their body. I mean, I really couldn't force you to eat my cheese, but if you chose to, I think you should be allowed to make that choice. Absolutely. Uh, and that's what we're built on, right? Personal choice is what we're kind of built on yeah. in this country. Hey, Kate, you know what I'm going to end with? Country Road, because you're reminding me of how much <laughs> of a small town guy I feel like in a big city. Like, I, it's just, I love the country life, even though I don't get out there as much. I feel it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Alex, as soon as this is over, come on out to Colorado. Make some cheese with me. Play with the baby goats. That would be amazing. Hey, Kate Johnson, thanks so much. The Cheese Coach. Great email, by the way. Cheese Coach at, uh, at uh, let me see, I forget. But the, the fact that it starts with Cheese Coach is great. I love that. Yeah, or you can just do Kate at theartofcheese.com. That works too. <laughs> there you go. Kate Johnson, thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you and stay safe up there. Thank you. Well, I've luckily been able to work from home most of the time, so we're doing okay. Good, good. 
Wow. And wow. please come back when you have more updates uh, throughout the month. Okay. I'll keep you posted. All right. I'm Alex Garrett. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze, country roads, take me home. Yesterday